You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. My name is Michael Bleeker, and I'm the worship pastor here at Citizens Church. I've been here for, uh, for almost three months, and it feels a lot longer, and I mean that in the best way. Um, but, uh, but it truly feels like I've been a part of this family for a long time. This month um, would mark 17 years at the Village Church uh, for me. Um, it's where I came from. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, I want you to hear this, that, um, you know, of course, my 16 years at the Village was, um, there, were, there were friendships forged. There was ministry that was really sweet. Um, but the Lord has called me and my family here with you, and, uh, and we are loving this place. We are so grateful to be here at Citizens, and we feel so loved and cared for by you. Um, and so it was really sweet on October 6th um, to say goodbye that morning to my family at the village and to come to night of worship that night and stand before you and be introduced as your worship pastor. And uh, just uh, such an honor uh, to do ministry with you, to, uh, to do this with you. And I'm excited for years to come. Uh, so Psalm 95 is where we'll be this morning. And I want to answer with Psalm 95 a few questions. Um, we're going to be talking about worship. So I want to answer the questions of what is worship? I want to answer why do we worship? How do we worship? And what keeps us from worship? Um, but before, before we talk about worship, I want to share why this subject means so much to me personally. Um, so here's, here's why worship, the topic of worship means so much to me. It's it's, I think it's through being a worshiper for the last 24 years that I've learned to relate to my heavenly father. Because my earthly father was in no way a godly and present father to me. And so the void that was created so many years ago has been filled over the years and even overflows by the powerful presence, grace, love, and mercy of my heavenly father. And so the void that started to grow on July 15th, 1978, um, it continued to grow as uh, my mom and dad were divorced when I was around five. Um, me and my younger brother, um, who is a member here at the church, we, uh, we moved in with my grandmother and my mom cared for us. She worked hard. She was amazing. She is amazing. She was amazing in those years. And I just want to say to those solo parents that may be in this room, you're doing a good work. May God continue to grant you strength and peace in the work because it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, my father, in contrast, uh, was abusive. He was a drug addict, an adulterer. He wanted very little to do with me and my brother. Um, He was a dad who introduced me to marijuana when I was 13, among many other things. And he, that would turn into three more years for me of uh, drug and alcohol abuse. From kindergarten through ninth, I attended a Catholic school during the week. And so mass and altar boy and all that Monday through Friday. And we lived with my grandmother and she was Assembly of God. So I would attend Assembly of God Church on Sunday. So the worship of God's people I saw in vastly different ways over those years. Uh, my mom remarried and we um, moved from Memphis to Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, my stepdad, George, at the time, he, uh, he got tickets to uh, the prom- a Promise Keepers rally. Uh, 
And I don't know if you remember Promise Keepers, but it was a men's conference in the 90s. And, uh, and so he asked if I wanted to go, and I said no, because I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> and I didn't want to hang out with 60,000 men singing and reading the Bible. It's just not something I was very interested in. And so uh, he insisted, and so he won. So, but I went with my uh, Grateful Dead tie-dye shirt on. I went with some bitterness in my back pocket. And uh, for the first couple of days, I just made fun of the 60,000 men who were at times crying, singing, sometimes holding hands. Um, and then a man named Tony Evans got up to preach. And he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my life was forever changed. I found myself on the floor of the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1996, crying, holding hands with this counselor, <laughs> and singing my guts out to a God that I only knew 15 minutes ago. We moved uh, my senior year to McKinney, just down the road, and uh, I ended up attending this little school in Arkansas called Washita Baptist University, where I picked up a guitar for the first time my freshman year. And by the end of my freshman year, I started leading worship, and um, that began to grow. Years later, uh, I'm standing uh, on the banks of, the, of Lake Travis near Austin at a camp called T-Bar-M and felt the Lord's call on my life that this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I had a short stint after college. So I moved to Nashville and quickly moved. Um, the Lord moved me back to Dallas and uh, started leading for a, a ministry called Metro. It was a singles college Bible study, and uh, it's where um, I met uh, Matt Chandler, um, who's the pastor at the Village Church, and what began 16 years of ministry with him at the Village, and Josh Patterson as well. It's also where I met my wife, more importantly, um, faith of 16 years. Um, we, uh, we have four boys, um, and when my oldest was born, Evan, in 2006, I remember um, talking with God and just going, God, I... Because I didn't grow up with this father figure, um, I don't know how to do this with a boy. I don't know how to do, like, teach me, show me. How am I supposed to do this? And, and it was like the Lord just sweetly said, I am your father. Look to me. Look to me. And so um, in the course of having children, uh, Evan being our first, we went to Memphis to see family and to see my father, um, and he never showed up. The second time we, we went, I was with Evan and my new son, Jude, um, who's 11 now, um, and my dad never showed up. And the third time we drove out to Memphis, that eight hours, and I had my third son, Bo, with us, and he was just a little baby. Um, and uh, my dad uh, showed up with just an hour to spare because we had to get back on the road to get back to Dallas, and I had to lead worship the next morning. So we got to hold my, my, my little baby, my third. He never met my fourth. Um, he had an hour with my oldest and my second. It was one of the, um, one of the things that, that just hurt most in my life, that my father, though it's okay, it is really okay, more so, that he didn't want to know me as well, but the fact that he didn't want to know my boys um, really, really hurt. Um, my dad died November 5th, 2013 of COPD. Um, my, uh, my stepdad, George, he died the next year, in June of 2014 of multiple myeloma, um, thankfully, um, the Lord has blessed my mom with an amazing man, uh, my, my stepdad, Glenn, who loves Jesus and loves us. So grateful for him. So grateful for 16 years of marriage to my beautiful wife and, and Evan, Jude, Bo, and Cohen, my four boys. And 
and leading into what we're talking about today, and also this burning desire that I had to lead others in worship in a way that, uh, that created, by the power of the Spirit, vulnerability and authenticity and a real worship, a worship that's in spirit and truth, as we'll read in just a minute. And so this psalm, Psalm 95, that we read earlier, this is the psalm uh, that the ancient church to today has used to inform the church about worship. And so I, I want to read it one more time, and then we're going to break it down and talk about worship. So Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this text tells us everything we need to know about worship. Again, the questions I want to answer this morning, what is worship? Why do we worship? How, how do we worship? And what is keeping us from worship? And so to begin, what, what is worship? I believe Tim Keller has one of the best definitions that I've found. And he says this, worship is the act of ascribing or assigning, giving ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. Okay, so worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. Now, we need to understand uh, this ultimate value. We need to understand what we value, what we treasure in life. We spend our lives pursuing what we most value in life. Money, fame, our God, the, the way we use our minds, uh, we can start to see what we treasure by what's most important to us, right? There's, there's a man, uh, there was a man named uh, um, Forrest Finn, and he buried what he called the Finn treasure in 2016 in the Rocky Mountains. It's supposedly $2 million worth of gold and jewels, and over the years, uh, many have gone looking for it. Um, he wrote a poem to try to lead people to it, almost a treasure map of sorts, um, and no one has found it. Um, four people, though, have given their lives trying to find it. And so in pursuit of something that, one, may not even be there, and two, something that won't last forever, um, four, four people died chasing what was most important to them. And in the same way, we, church, can neglect everything important in our lives in pursuit of things like fame, fortune. Matthew 16 would warn us, though, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worshipers who value God respond with their entire being, their heart, their body, their mind. And this is important for us to understand today because if you come to church and you affirm our doctrine, you, you affirm what we say, you affirm the things that we sing at this church and do that without ever experiencing any kind of joy or peace or beauty, it's not worship. 
Inversely, you can stand here weeping this morning with your hands raised and with loud shouts, but if it doesn't change the way you live, if your mind doesn't understand the things that you say or sing, if your character isn't changed, it's not worship. We could be wrong in two different ways here. Worshiping in truth only, worshiping in spirit only, in emotion and affection only. And John Piper says it really well in his book, Desiring God. He says this, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy, which is our belief our, as Christians, our doctrine. And a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And so we don't want to be artificial admirers here at Citizens. And we don't want to be shallow thinkers either, do we? We want to be worshipers, as Jesus says in John 4, 23, to the woman at the well, who worship in spirit and in truth. He says those are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. So we see that the entire being is the heart, the body, the mind. But what engages this? What engages the entire being? It's ascribing value to God. The psalmist in verse 3 and in verse 7 says this, for the Lord. Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. So he said, come and shout and bow down for our God is great or because our God is great. Now, this, all this includes singing, of course, which a lot of us attribute to worship. But, but we also know that it's so much more than that, right? Um, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, says this, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. So at times, our worship can be really natural, right? And at other times, it can feel like a strategy to fight self-exaltation and this preoccupation with ourselves. And so we've answered the question, what is worship? Now, why should we worship? What should, why should we ascribe ultimate value to God with our entire being? Well, it's because, because God has created us to worship. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Bring everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the truth is, we're actually all already worshiping something. We're all living for something and whatever that thing is, like we just said earlier, God, money, power, maybe it's a person, Maybe it's your spouse that's your God. Maybe it's some, something or someone online that you just can't, you can't get out of your mind and it becomes an idol. I know for some of us, in about six hours, we'll be clapping our hands at a TV. We'll be jumping up and down in front of a TV. We'll be lifting our hands in either victory or defeat, right? 
some of us are going to be there. Now, now, is it wrong to do all that at a football game? Absolutely not. Um, there is common grace and there is joy and we can do all of those things. It doesn't mean we can't clap or shout at a football game. Certainly we can do all these things without ascribing ultimate value to the Chiefs or the 49ers or those amazing stuffed poppers, jalapeno poppers. Um, but the point is we're always worshiping something. I'll say it like this. The world isn't divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship something that can distort your life, something that's wrong, and people who worship the triune God. Something like this that isn't life or death, like a football game, though, I always want to ask myself, does it produce in me more of a reaction or expression than I give to the things that I say are eternally true and, or life-changing? Does it produce in me more of a reaction or expression than I give to the things that I say are eternally true or life-changing? So when Jamin stands on here most Sundays and he'll say things like, Jesus conquered death, that should elicit a response in the church. And it's not necessarily about the amen, brother, or raising your hands. It's, it's not necessarily that. Sitting quietly in God's presence, I know for a fact in the scriptures that that has happened in worship. It's the same as shouting in agreement when we're ascribing ultimate value to God. And we'll talk more about biblical postures in a minute, but is your emotion going to what you say is most important to you? So what is worship? Why do we worship? Now, how do we worship? How do we ascribe ultimate value to God with our entire being? Well, Psalm 95 shows us four ways. Heart, mind, body, and community. So with the heart, in verse 2, it says, Come with thanksgiving. Come with thanksgiving. Psalm 86, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Now, there's really two ways to look at the heart here. So in verse 2, it says, come with thanksgiving. But in verse 8, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is to say, if you harden your hearts, you lose readiness, you lose cheerfulness, you lose thanksgiving. Matthew 15 says, this people honors me with their lips, and don't miss this church, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And that was toward the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I know that I have been that person before. So we worship. How we worship? We worship, one, with our heart. Two, we worship with our mind. We worship with truth. So verse 8 says, hear, listen to his voice, or accept what he says. Let's reason. Let's think on this. Let's use our mind. Our theology, or our study of God, should inform and it should propel our doxology or our praise to God. Our theology should inform and propel our doxology. Years ago, I, I led uh, a set at the church and one of the songs that I led was Come Thou Fount. And, uh, and after that, that service was over, I was packing up and a man walked up to me and he said, son, I've been leading worship for 40 years and I've never thought about the word Ebenezer in that song. And me, I'm a 24, is right, right and starting at the village, 24 years old, and I'm going, 
uh, I know what he's going to ask. I know what he's going to ask. And all I can think is the Scrooge character, you know, like I, I know there has to be biblical precedent for this, but I don't know what it is. And, uh, and so I had to humbly just say, sir, I'm sorry. I, I, I do not know, but I will find out. Went to my office. I opened up the hymnal and opened up my Bible. And I found in 1 Samuel 7, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So what happened is Samuel placed an Ebenezer or what's called a stone of help at the place where this restoration began. He publicly dedicated it as a monument to God's help, God's faithfulness, God's eternal covenant. And so as the people got on with their lives and they passed it, they remembered this is the God who saved us, who brought help, who brought restoration to us. And so next time that we sing together, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I'm come. There's so much more depth and meaning to those words, right? We use our minds to worship, not just our hearts, not just our minds. Those together, we use that. Another, another uh, interesting thing, hallelujah. I remember sitting in a service and going, hallelujah, hallelujah, with my hands raised, and I was shouting it. And then I sat down and I thought, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> Halle. It's two words, actually. Hale is a joyous praise, a boasting in God. And then Yah, which is actually J-A-H. It's, it's, it's another word for Yahweh, Lord. And so it's a joyful boasting in the Lord. And so we just sang, hallelujah, come. Hallelujah, come. Just a sweet, such a sweet word when we know uh, what's behind it. And just a reminder, in John 4, Jesus Talking to the woman at the well, there is coming a time when real worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so with our hearts, with our minds, with our affections, with our thoughts, we want to worship him. And Luke 10 says this, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. What you continually put before you will shape and determine who you are. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your worship, church, can influence those around you. The worship of those you are leading, not just here from a stage for those who lead from the stage, but in your workplaces, in your homes, on social media. The Bible says, let my face be radiant. Your words are life to those who hear them. You are worship leaders, church. And the, the, uh, the worship of those you are leading will be richer if you teach them the riches of the one they're celebrating. So we worship with our hearts, we worship with our minds, and we worship with our bodies. Verse 6 in Psalm 95 says, Come, kneel, bow down. The word... Uh, bow down um, is in Hebrew, hestahawa. It means literally to, to bend at the waist. It's the literal definition of worship in the Bible. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that look like? Well, in Psalm 95, we see every part, 
We see every part. We see eyes, ears, hands, feet, voices, minds, our entire bodies, once, once ravaged by sin and now tools of righteousness. And so some biblical postures of worship. I just want to walk through just a couple of them, a few of them. Now, I want to, I want to remind you, these aren't suggestions that the Lord gives in the Bible. These are commands of God. Biblical postures of worship. Singing, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 9-2, shouting, Psalm 71-23, standing, Isaiah 29-23, sitting in God's presence, 2 Samuel 7-18, praying, Psalm 5-3, clapping, Psalm 47-1, lifting hands, Psalm 134-2, dancing, <laughs> dancing, Maybe in the back of the room, but dancing, <laughs> dancing. I'm just kidding. You dance wherever you want. And I have two scriptures for that one. Psalm 3011 and Psalm 149.3. Playing an instrument. 1 Samuel 16.23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed him. Now, throughout the Bible, we see worshipers responding with their minds, their hearts, and their bodies. And we also see uh, the church worshiping in community, our fourth point. Psalm 95, again, says, Oh, come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise with songs of praise, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture church. We are being called to worship in community. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yes, we are, we are certainly to worship on our own. Matthew 6 would tell us to pray, go behind closed doors and pray, but we are commanded to meet together as we have this morning. To what? To, to encourage one another, to build one another up in the faith. I know, I know that some of you have walked into this place because I have been that person as well. Some of you have walked into this place feeling such shame over something. And maybe the weight of it, or maybe the weight of depression or whatever it may be has just kept you from standing up and from singing, yet your brothers and sisters around you are singing for you. They're singing for you. In a world where most people are staying in their homes and watching church online on a Sunday morning, it's important to be reminded that meeting together stirs our affections for the Lord. It brings opportunity for encouragement for one another. There's just something different about being in a room together, looking around and being encouraged by other brothers and sisters. I have a, a lot of hopes for us. I have a lot of hopes for over uh, uh, lots of years, hopefully. Jamin last night said, I think you got three good years in you as a pastor, but I hope for a lot more of those. Um, I hope that we continue to grow as a people who feel the freedom to be expressive in a world where we're always mindful of what people think about us. And when we come together in worship, we're corporately, as a people, mindful of who we're worshiping and how he thinks of us, amen? How he thinks of us, not what other people think of us. So I want us to take some time before we close to just bow your heads 
close your eyes as we consider this last point of what keeps us from worship. What keeps you, brother, sister, from worship? Maybe it's suffering. And I want to encourage you that even in this storm, even in this desert that you find yourself in, continue to worship. Romans 5 would tell you that rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And you're not alone if suffering is what's keeping you from worship. After the service, there'll be men and women at the front here that would love to hear from you and love to pray for you. Maybe it's doubt for you. Maybe you pray and you, you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. Maybe you say, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer. If it's doubt, that's keeping you from worship. We're so glad that you're here among other brothers and sisters that can bring encouragement to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you this morning, it's hurry. Dallas Willard says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Doing for God, church, only results in trusting the law. It's not Jesus when we just do for him. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 from the message says this, are you tired? Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Maybe what's keeping you from worship this morning is shame. Maybe there was a sin in your life that you committed that you just can't accept the fact that God has covered it. Maybe it was this morning, maybe it was last night around 10 o'clock, or maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe you walked in here with shame this morning. But what I want to remind you is what the Lord reminds us in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Believe that this morning, church. There is no shame for you anymore. Believe that. Believe the words of the Lord. Second Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And I want to say what my, my friend Matt Chandler has said for years. The Lord does not love some future version of you. He knew you and loved you and formed you in your mother's womb before you were able to do anything for him. He loved you as he loves you now. He chose you. He adopted you as a son or daughter. Would you believe this morning that the Lord does not love some future version of you, but he loves you as you are right now?
I'll end with this. At times when I sing, my earthly father can come to mind, I'm immediately drawn back to wanting his approval, which I'll never have. It can really be tiring, you know, looking for approval in others. But when I sing with my heavenly father in mind, it's not work. I don't have anything to earn. That's the gospel rest that Matthew 11 describes. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. So church, through being a worshiper, we can ascribe ultimate value to our heavenly father, Jesus Christ, his son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God, who fills any void we might have to the point of overflowing. We love you, O oh Lord our God. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross, who rose from the dead and who will return one day. You are good. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.